Hey everyone, long time no see. Welcome back to New Narratives, dispatches from Minnesota that highlight the stories of Asian America. I'm your host, Anya Steinberg. I'm the storyteller intern at Asian American Organizing Project, which is a nonpartisan nonprofit based out of St. Paul, Minnesota, focused on supporting the Asian American Pacific Islander community in the Twin Cities area. Somewhere in the rotunda of the Capitol building in St. Paul, Minnesota, there hangs an enormous bronze plaque, probably as wide as your arm span, with an eagle carved into the top and standing firmly at the bottom, on top of a pedestal, an armed soldier. This plaque is a memorial to Minnesotans who fought in the Philippine-American War at the turn of the 20th century. Etched into its surface is the story of their bravery, their cunning, and their patriotism. And right below it, well, that's another plaque. One that says that a lot of the first plaque isn't even true. The war these plaques are about, my guess is that most of you have never heard of it. Yet, it's the war where we can trace the roots of our brutality, from the U.S. war strategy in Vietnam to the American police. In this two-part series on the Philippine-American War, we're going to tell the winding story of these two plaques. From a time before the Philippines even existed, up until today, when a group of Filipinx Americans found themselves in Minnesota, lobbying against a plaque hanging in the state capitol. Remember Professor Aguilar San Juan? She was the one who first introduced me to the plaques, way back when I interviewed her for episode 6. So I called her up to talk about the Philippine-American War and what it has to do with Minnesota's state capital. First things first, though. For those of you who don't know, no need to embarrass yourself asking the nearest Filipino. I asked her, what are the Philippines? It's an archipelago, so there's 7,000 islands. Actually, there's 7,108 islands in low tide and 7,107 islands in high tide. That means it's not one big landmass like the U.S. where you just get on a bus and drive over, you know, a car drive over, where you can't do that in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. This whole area is very liminal. It's like on one side is Asia and the other side is the Pacific. Um, to the south are these other islands who then became, you know, constituted as Indonesia and I think Malaysia too, so. But before we get ahead of ourselves, talking about the plaques and Minnesota's role in the war, we need to do my favorite thing, rewind. This episode, I'm taking us through Filipino history, rewinding all the way back to the beginnings of this island nation. I spoke to Professor Lisandro Claudio, who teaches Southeast Asian studies, specializing in the history of the Philippines at UC Berkeley. Yeah, my name is Lisandro Claudio, but my nickname is Leloy. I have a name that's almost... Uh, has no relationship with my real name, my nickname, which happens to a lot of Filipinos. And the reason for that is that it's a, it's an intentionally peasant-sounding name, Leloy, because my parents were members of the Maoist underground when I was young, and they were expecting an imminent peasant revolution. So they're like, why don't we give the kid a peasant name? I wanted to know, from someone born and raised in the Philippines, what the Philippines were like before the Spanish colonized in the 1400s. Professor Claudio schooled me. I don't know. This is a very academic answer. But mm -hmm. there was no Philippines prior to the occupation of the Spanish, right? Mm -hmm. Because these were a bunch of islands and groups and tribes that did not consider themselves a national community. The Philippines as a concept was formed in the crucible of colonialism, which is the case for a lot of other nations, not just in Southeast Asia, but in the world, right? The, the contemporary nations we know of are, are essentially former colonies. So when you say Indonesia, right, that was the Dutch East Indies. When you say the Philippines, that was Spanish Filipinas. 
Right. The name Philippines comes from the Spanish King Philip. Before the Spanish, the Philippines had no reason to be the Philippines. Even though it's a defined nationality and culture today, the Philippines has always had these fuzzy borders. There are different conceptions of the Philippines. Like, for example, early Filipino nationalists and a lot of Spanish colonizers thought that the Marianas Islands were part of the Philippines, that the Chamorros were essentially Filipino, right? And, and of course, that's it's no longer the case now. I always tell my students, and, and this shocks them, well, not shocks them, but it, it's fascinating for them. From the northern tip of contemporary Philippines, you can see Taiwan. No telescope, right? No binoculars, the lights of Taiwan. And that tells you about the porosity. When a nation is made up of 7,000 different islands, it becomes tough to erect the same kinds of border walls that we do in the U.S. to define ourselves. A lot of those boundaries are difficult to police. So for instance, like you have smugglers in the south of the Philippines, really like they smuggle rice from Koto Kinabalu, they spend Mar- Malaysian ringgit, but they speak Sama, they, they speak, they, they're, they're Sama Bajau, and so therefore they speak the language and they have relatives in, in, in Indonesia, they have relatives in the Philippines because they're of the same tribe, right? And those relatives enable the smuggling network. And it's quite fascinating, right? And so smuggler is an interesting figure because the smuggler transcends the and boundaries of the, the contemporary nation state. So yeah, it's arbitra- it was arbitrary, and that arbitrariness is something you see in the figure of the smuggler. So the Spanish. They came in boats, and when they washed ashore, they founded one nation out of many. The Spanish colonized the Philippines in the 1500s, all the way from the 1500s to the 1900s. And that was part of Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand decided uh, let's divide the world between Spain and Portugal. So we'll draw a line and then Portugal gets this half and Spain gets this half. That was decided over there in Spain, right? It wasn't like the Filipinos said, hello, we're all alone here on these islands and we need like some kind of European ruler. So why were the Spanish drawn all the way across the world to this cluster of islands? Professor Claudio told me that the Spaniards were jealous of something these islands had that they didn't. Spaniards were looking for spices, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, just think about eating kind of bland meat without any spices whatsoever, it would drive you nuts. So mm-hmm. part of it was the desire to expand the spice trade. When they got to the Philippines, or what we now consider the Philippines, it eventually became a process of Christianization. Trade and profit were the Spaniards' focus, but the reasons for colonization were also deeply tied to religion. When we think about colonization in the U.S., it's a messy, mixed bag. People romanticize the original colonists and their pursuit of freedom from tyranny. But these same colonists enslaved people, killed indigenous people, and stole their land in the name of that freedom. I approached Spanish colonization of the Philippines thinking it was a different place, but the same game. Professor Claudio told me that wasn't quite the case. Many of the Spanish colonists were missionaries bringing Christianity to the Philippines, the remnants of which are still present today. And that's largely what happens to the country. So until now, we consider it the only majority Catholic country in, uh, in Asia, right? Um, the initial phase, and what for many people would be the only phase of Spanish colonialism, would be the priest. So in far-flung areas, for instance, you had missionaries, like Jesuit missionaries, for instance, setting up um, chapels and churches and organizing the community into communities of the Catholic faith, right? They would not only tend to the so-called spiritual needs of the peoples there, but they would tend to a lot of the, the kind of political needs of the emerging colonial state. Taxation went through them, for instance. Right? Education went through them. And that's why the parish priest becomes a very influential 
person in Philippine society. These priests, they were colonizing powers, but they also were part of whatever village they had planted themselves in. And sometimes they were figures of protection. In the Visayas Islands, for example, there were a lot of slave raiders from the Muslim South because um, a lot of the Muslim tribes considered Visayans um, lowland Christians. They considered them slaves. So they would go, they would enter the Visayas Islands um, and kidnap Visayans, take them to Mindanao and enslave them, right? So when these slave raids happened, it was usually the Spanish priest who would protect these um, potential enslaved peoples in churches and in chapels, right? So there was a kind of, it developed a kind of really intense relationship between the parish priest and the communities. And so remember, in some of these far-flung areas, right, that, that's the only span, that's the only evidence of Spanish colonialism you see, the priest, right? There are no Spanish soldiers, no Spanish um, politicians, no Spanish colonial officials, right? Just the priest. I wondered how this dynamic could exist. Being a colonizer and being in community with native populations were two ideas that seemed completely opposite in my mind. The Philippines was the most far-flung territory of the Spanish Empire. So if you were a priest and you went to the Philippines, that was it. You would stay there forever. Right? It would be very, very hard to go back to Spain. So essentially, like that became your world. That became your community. And and as a result of that, a lot of the a lot of the Spanish missionaries and a lot of Spanish priests ended up in the Philippines. For some, you know, obviously they were part of a really problematic system called colonialism, right? But within that context, some of them were some of the most dedicated priests and colonial officials because they were essentially saying, you know, I'm foregoing my life in the metropole to completely invest that life in the colonies. Professor Claudio told me that, of course, there was white supremacy in the Philippines, just like in the colonial Americas. But it was different. Of course, of course, of course. But it was not as pronounced as in the context of the United States, mm. right? You, I guess you can explain things that are happening in the Philippines using an American lens, but at the same time, you have to nuance it. And, and the main nuance is geography. It's far. The, the same politics could not obtain there. And there's one reason for that, because there were so few white settlers in the Philippines mm. because it was so far away from Spain. In order for them to develop a kind of political community, they had to reach out to others within that community. Like, mm. for example, Indios, like Chinese mestizos, etc. The second thing is that um, this white settler colonial class was never purely white because, again, you know, it's so far that there were f- very few purely white people. There was always mixing to begin with. The term at that time for Filipino, the more general term was Creole. Like, so uh, European born in the colonies, Creole. So you know, Hamilton was a Creole, right? Um, Washington was a Creole, European born in the colonies, right? Same thing in the Philippines, the Creoles. And so in the Americas, you get a kind of purer Creolismo or purer Creolism because they were relatively closer to Europe. So you had more white people there. So they developed a kind of really pure, a purer Creole class that mixed less. But because in the Philippines it was so far and there were so few of them, they mixed a lot more, right? So the, so, so the Creolism in the Philippines was always more open than Creolism, say, in the United States or Creolism in various parts of the Americas, right? At this point, I think it's important to talk about all the different groups in the Philippines because they aren't all Filipinos yet. This is where the language gets a bit messy. There are Spaniards and there are native people who the Spanish called Indios. And then there are Filipinos. The first generation of Filipinos were white men. 
the first people to call themselves Filipinos as a kind of nationalist appellation were white men. And if you think this is confusing, I mean, um, let's just use the United States as a, as a parallel example. The first people to call themselves Americans were not the Native Americans or the Indians, right? They were people like Jefferson, Hamilton, Washington, right? It wasn't until centuries after Spanish colonization that the word Filipino came to signify a movement for national independence. But resistance to colonization was always a part of the Philippines, even before the Philippines was the Philippines, when Lapu-Lapu, a native person, killed Magellan, the Portuguese explorer who first tried to lay claim to the Philippines. The rumblings of real revolution came in the early 1800s. Filipinos, or remember, the Spaniards who are born and raised in the colony, they're becoming restless. They feel trapped by the colonial structure. They only know the Philippines, right? Mm -hmm. They are denied administrative power in the metropole because they're born in the Philippines, they're, fi they're Filipino, so they can't be influential in Spain. But they're also denied a lot of administrative power in the colony because the people who are given administrative power in the colony are people who are sent from Spain, right? So that creates a kind of creole identity parallel with the United States, right? They're white people, they're British, but they only have limited power in the colonies and they want to... And they believe that the colonies are their home, so they, they want to assert that. So that, that happens. I spoke to Dr. Theodore Gonzalves, who is a curator of Asian American Pacific history at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. He told me that these Filipino males traveled back and forth from the Philippines to Europe, where they learned about the Enlightenment. As these Filipino elite males got together and, and thought about their common work, they, were, they would refer to themselves as ilustrados the illustrious ones, the people who are enlightened. And they, again, they are animated and inspired by the terms of European enlightenment, which they would use as a weapon against colonial darkness. The kind of colonial authority that would keep our country, this country, this home country of theirs, enslaved or uneducated or miseducated. This movement, it's gaining momentum from the flurry of revolutions that happened at the close of the 1700s. Filipinos catch the independence fever from France and the United States. By the 19th century, the term Filipino is not just a political designation that Spaniards use to distinguish themselves from their friends in the Philippines. It starts to become an identity. So that, that happens in the Philippines in the, early, in the early 19th century. And the most important person in this regard is, is a Creole named Luis Rodriguez Varela who called himself the Conde Filipino, or the, the Count of the Philippines, right? So he was the first person to actively call himself a Filipino. That's Professor Claudio again. Prior to that, the term Filipino was an, an administrative designation. So like, you were the Spaniard, the peninsular Spaniard came from Spain, and you designated the Spaniards born in the Philippines as Filipino. So it's kind of administrative. So Varela kind of owns the term and says, you know, I'm the Filipino Count, El, El Conde Filipino. Mm -hmm. So he is the first in that regard. That Creole movement grows in the 19th century, largely informed by the liberalism of the 19th century. Remember, there are two major revolutions that opened the century. Those are the American Revolution and the French Revolution. So these Creoles are inspired by that revolution, try to bring the principles of that revolution in the Philippines. That kind of liberal movement, combined with a sense of attachment with the land, sparks a kind of period of nationalist agitation, and that grows, and that expands, you know, so... I said that the Creole movement was not homogenous in the Philippines, unlike you know the United States, right? So that expands. So you have a couple, so you have Chinese mestizos becoming part of that movement. 
you have um, Indios becoming part of that movement, right? And that movement essentially peaks in 1872. 1872 is um, when the Spanish government decides to crack down on this movement. So a lot of them end up in exile, a lot of them start hiding, right? A lot of them are jailed, right? And so that creates a, that become, it makes it quiet from 1872 until the early 1880s. The crackdown doesn't kill the revolution, though. It's too late for that. Instead, the revolutionary thinkers retreat to Spain. It's safer in Spain, right? Um, there's less repression. And they believe, and this movement believes that they can achieve their goals if they lobby in Spain. So a lot of young Filipino students, and by now Filipino is a more, is, is a broader term, right? They're in Spain and they agitate there and they organize there and they launch a newspaper called La Solidaridad, which becomes the kind of main outlet of Filipino nationalism in Spain. And of course, the primos inter pares of this movement, and I'm sure you've heard of him, Jose Rizal, the most influential person in this cohort. So he writes for La Solidaridad and he writes two nationalist novels. You know, that galvanizes the movement and that also, that movement in Spain also inspires um, domestic agitation in the Philippines. And that domestic agitation ultimately culminates in the Philippine Revolution of 1896, the first anti-colonial revolution in Asia, but the last anti-colonial revolution in the Spanish world. And this is where the story of the Philippines gets complicated. Okay, so we've got the revolutionaries. By now, the revolutionaries are composed of a few major groups. The revolution is led by essentially the urban lower middle class and the provincial gentry. So those are the two major elements within the revolution. These were people who were largely working in factories, trading houses. And according to Professor Claudio, their enemies were... Peninsular, mostly, yeah, peninsular Spaniards, right? Like um, Spaniards that have come to the Philippines, too. Mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. Mostly um, clustered around, well, you know, the colonial government, but also Spanish friars who continue to dominate the Philippine church. And they're the kind of counter-revolutionary forces at that time. So to simplify, you know, this is, this is a quote from Rizal. Rizal says, Some of us are Creole, meaning we're white. Mm-hmm. Some of us are... Chinese mestizo, meaning we're mixed. Some of us are Indio, meaning we're native. But we only call ourselves Filipino. So here we are, in 1896. The Filipino nationalists have begun to rise up against the Spanish colonial government in a movement they call La Catipunan. And for a second, it looks like it might not work. Emilio Aguinaldo, the most prominent general in La Catipunan, he nearly surrenders. So in, uh, on December 15, 1897, um, Aguinaldo signs a pact with the Spanish, essentially that he would go into exile uh, into Hong, in Hong Kong, right? And he does. And it's a kind of win, temporary win for the Spaniards, essentially. But at the time, the Americans, conv- so this is the time of the Spanish-American War, so the Americans convinced Aguinaldo to continue the fight against the Spaniards. Then essentially the Americans said, you know, we have your back. He returns to the Philippines under the sponsorship of the Americans. With Aguinaldo backed by the Americans, Dr. Gonzalez said that the victory was in sight for Filipino nationalists. So by 1898, um, the Philippine Revolution against Spain had become successful. They had turned over thousands of Spanish forces to the Americans and had, had been holding these land positions. It was a decisive military victory for the Philippine army. Up until this time, they had been fighting as a standing army, you know, identified by uniforms, and you can see what they were wearing. That's an important detail. 
Dr. Gonzalez told me that the Filipinos fought the Spaniards in uniform, army to army, in an old-fashioned duel. In 1898, they won that fight and declared sovereignty, with Emilio Aguinaldo as the first president of the Philippines. While the Filipinos held the land in terms of the, of the army from 1898, um, slowly you would begin to see the naval forces coming in from the United States, who would, would maintain a stream of U.S. Army personnel coming into the Philippines. It was becoming odd for, for many Filipinos to, to look at the thousands and thousands of U.S. soldiers coming into the Philippines at this time. But the question then for Americans is, are they going to recognize this new nation? Because sovereignty is not just something that can appear magically. You can declare sovereignty. Part of it is also being recognized as sovereign by others. And the United States refused recognition of Philippine independence. So this left an open question, well, what's next? Professor Claudio knows what came next, the ultimate betrayal by the U.S. Right, they, they thought that they'd want independence and that they'd have the support of Americans. And if you look at the text of the Malolos Constitution, certain parts of it, you know, even our own Declaration of Independence were reminiscent of the American Declaration of Independence. Essentially, they were thinking that the Americans would support them because they thought that America as a former colony itself would not become a colonizer. Mm. That's why they trusted the Americans, right? As the Spanish are about to surrender, the Spanish essentially say, you know, we won't surrender to Filipinos, but, you know, based on our pride, we can surrender to Americans, right? And so there's a mock battle of Manila wherein the, the Americans storm Manila and they pretend to fight with the Spanish and the Spanish lay down their arms and it's a kind of honorable defeat. You know, white people defeated by other white people, it's an honorable defeat. This, this comes alongside the turning over of the Philippines, um, the purchase of the Philippines from Spain based on international law. Um, mm. The Philippines has been purchased, right? And so therefore, because there is American sovereignty over the Philippines already, right, then the Aguinaldo government, in the eyes of the Americans, is an illegal government and it's effectively an insurrection, right? And this is where the Philippine-American War begins. So you have the Philippine-American War of 1898 to 1902. Essentially, and you have a four-year war that becomes really bloody. And depending on the estimate, you know, some people, a high estimate I've seen is a million Filipinos dead as a result of the war. This is in a population of 8 million. The low estimate is like 250, 250,000. The high estimate is a million. So that includes people who die in the war, people who die because of disease, or there's a cholera epidemic that spreads as a result of the war. I was shocked by the number of Filipino casualties from this war. That number represents so many people I had never known about dead from a war that I had never heard of before. Dr. Gonzalez said that the brutality of this war was probably one of the reasons why it is still so obscure. It was justified along, depending on the actor you talk with, it was justified along economic and racial lines. And that's not something necessarily that, that many people can look back with any sense of, of pride. It wasn't necessarily just merely to liberate a colony. If the United States wanted to liberate the Philippines, which they were attempting to do in the early years of, of the conflict, uh, it doesn't explain why then they held on to the colony for themselves for almost half a century. To Dr. Gonzalez, the U.S. has always woven these dissonant and deceptive narratives about colonization since the very beginning. When you think about U.S. colonization of North America, there are 
these celebrated narratives of the United States that talk about its own independence and seeking independence from Britain, but sewn into the Declaration of Independence and sewn into the Constitution was a, a great contradiction uh, of seeking one's own freedom from another empire, the British Empire, but while also enslaving a whole class of people and then exterminating others. So that, that contradiction has been sewn into the documents and it's mm -hmm. not something that could be easily explained away. What what is the quality of freedom and independence mean for people who are unfree, who remain enslaved, who remain displaced and demonized? And, and so by the time you get to 1898, 1899 and the US-Philippine War, these become echoes. People are experiencing the echoes of, of American history um, uh, coming across from the, the Eastern seaboard. Professor Claudio saw another motivation behind the U.S. war in the Philippines. Just like the Spanish nearly 500 years before, the U.S. wanted to follow God's will into the Philippines. If you listen to McKinley, who was the president at the time, essentially says that he is authorizing the takeover of the Philippines occupation of the Philippines under the idea of benevolent assimilation. Benevolent assimilation means we'll occupy, we'll do it nicely, right? Kind of McDonald's colonization, colonization with a smile. So he says that, you know, he, Makina is a very religious man. So he says he's walking around, around the White House. He's listening for the voice of God and eventually kind of hears the voice of God. Actually very reminiscent of George W. Bush before invading Iraq. You know, I realized that it is my duty to civilize these people and to give them the kind of political institutions that America has. And we are in this kind of special place of being able to do this. So let's, let's do it, right? Benevolent assimilation. So it's McKinley, right? There are a lot of forces in the United States that time that wanted to go west, but they'd already hit California. So how much further can you go? Uh, according to Theodore Roosevelt, you go west uh, to the point of crossing the Pacific and making men out of yourselves in the context of the wild, wild, wild super west, which is Asia, right? So that was the next frontier. Like I said at the top of the episode, this forgotten war was the catalyst of so many modern manifestations of brutality. When people think of the atrocities of war, probably the most infamous example is the Holocaust. But Professor Claudio told me that the origins of the concentration camp can actually be traced to the Philippine-American War. The Americans engage in practices that the Spaniards did, which is uh, the practice of reconcentration, or concentrating people in certain areas so that they're not able to interact with the rebels, right? Reconcentration, concentrating people in particular areas in the 20th century, of course, that becomes the concentration camp. So even the idea of the concentration camp, that has its genesis in essentially you know, the, the practices of the Spaniards, which become adopted by the Americans in the Philippine-American War. So when you say concentration, like in that context, is that just talking about like trapping people in the city or like? In their villages, essentially, okay. and then cutting off kind of supplies mm -hmm. and militarizing that area so that they're not able to provide food for revolutionaries, um, provide shelter for revolutionaries, right? That's the genesis of the idea of concentrating your enemy. And you may remember from our episodes on the U.S. war in Vietnam that the U.S. employed uniquely cruel war tactics to fight the guerrilla forces, or the Viet Cong. But this strategy didn't come out of nowhere. They actually wrote the playbook for the war strategy, drawing on lessons learned in the Philippine-American War. Here's Dr. Gonzalez. But one of the things that, that Filipinos realized is that they didn't have an adequate reliance on weaponry and, and other arms 
and were outmatched militarily by the United States just by the sheer number uh, and also the technology of weaponry at the time that they were bringing in. This forced then the Filipinos to adopt a new military strategy and they had to, to fight tactically in a different way, which was to remove their standing army profile uh, wearing uniforms and to move into a guerrilla warfare situation, to attack and then to retreat, to keep attacking, to use the cover of various villages and to harass soldiers until they would eventually leave. This becomes something of an annoyance to the United States because they are, these U.S. armed forces are not used to fighting in a guerrilla warfare situation. But the things that they ended up having to learn would be reflected upon by U.S. military commanders in Vietnam. And then they'd be reflected again in, in 2003 with the occupation of Iraq. So when you think about military commanders that have built up um, long histories of how to fight insurgencies, people were taking, especially U.S. Pentagon war planners, are taking the lessons of the Philippines and bringing them into uh, wars of, of fighting insurgencies in Vietnam, Southeast Asia, as well as in Iraq. So when you think about the long history of what this war means, it means quite a lot to people, not just to Filipinos, but it also means a lot to war fighters who are trying to take lessons about how to successfully suppress insurgent troops. Professor Aguilar San Juan even traces the origins of the American police system, the center of so many American debates about racism and brutality, to the Philippine constabulary that the U.S. created to suppress nationalism. Well, there's some dirty business, like the the U.S. Army recruits Filipino nationalists into the Philippine constabulary. At one point, it was called the Insular Constabulary. I happen to know this because I was looking at the origins of the U.S. police. And one of them is in the Philippines during this time where they're in Manila and they want to secure power over this people, right? They got to put down these nationalists. So they recruit former nationalists and they say, hey, will you spy on your fellow people? And some people say yes. So those become hired by this constabulary force to monitor, survey, photograph, catalog, and sometimes execute people who were fighting for nationalism. And so that began some of the like procedures of policing to like actually spy on people and then, if necessary, eradicate them. So the war ends in 1902, as most historical sources will agree. But some historical estimates say that the war didn't end until as late as 1907. Why? In a nation of over 7,000 islands, especially in a war before telephones existed, you can imagine how difficult it would be to coordinate a single end date, or even an end year, of a war. When the dust settled, though, the U.S. had itself a brand new colony. Dr. Gonzalez said that the benefits the U.S. reaped from the Philippines largely had to do with the military and the economy. The plan for U.S. colonization of the Philippines was really cemented with military bases having uh, rent-free access to these large tracts of land for, for many, many years. But then you'd, you'd also have a, the co-optation of a Philippine elite uh, for the purposes of securing favorable economic deals with the United States in terms of lower tariffs or the importation of goods without any such barriers. Uh, so it was really quite a boom for for the United States to be able to have access. One was having, having a military foothold in the Asia region, but also to have access now then to have, uh, well, to have access to uh, not only workers, but also uh, locally produced goods like copra and ham, for example. Professor Claudio weighs both the goods and bads of colonialism when he thinks about the U.S. occupation of the Philippines. Of course, we're all anti-colonial, right? But there were things within colonialism that 
I'm going to say this very carefully. I'm obviously not endorsing colonialism, but of course, if if you know, a country stays for 40 years, there are going to be good, positive, and negative developments, right? It's just inevitable. It can't be a hundred percent bad. So, I mean, a lot of bad things happen. So let's begin with the bad stuff. Of course, there's a lot of repression, right? There's a you know, they they ban they ban a lot of speech, right? It's very hypocritical, right? Because this is supposed to be you know, a republic that respects the Second Amendment. They they do things like ban seditious plays, right? They continue to go after revolutionaries and they or insurrectionists in their terms, and they're very violent towards their insurrectionists. A lot of the modern methods of torture that you see in Iraq were developed in the Philippines, for example, like uh, waterboarding, for instance. In the Philippines, that was called the water cure, and it was a lot worse than the kind of waterboarding they did in Guantanamo and, uh, and, and Abu Ghraib. They did that. But at the same time, they're able to do things that um, were impossible under the Spaniards. So one thing is the creation of a secular educational system. The Spanish educational system was extremely theocratic. As a result of the Americans, you, you eventually get space for kind of uh, Filipino secularism to emerge. I think the greatest thing that the United States does in the Philippines is it sets up the, the University of the Philippine system, which is the largest state university in the country. According to Professor Claudio, the U.S. always had a roadmap for the Philippines. Unlike other colonial powers, they didn't want to keep them forever. They set up a Congress mimicking American government with an upper house, lower house, and a Senate. And the lower house was already exclusively Filipino. So it was actually the only, at that time, the only parliamentary body in the colonized world that was completely run by the natives. So even in the early part of American colonialism, you could already see hints of them saying that eventually we're going to let you go because we're already giving you all of these powers. In their mind, I think you know, they were training wheels. Dr. Gonzalez, though, has a bit of a different take on U.S. occupation. He thinks the racial animosities flourishing at home in the U.S. had a huge influence on how and when the U.S. decided to relinquish control of the Philippines. With the colonization of the Philippines, you have the creation of this kind of legal fiction for Filipinos living in the Philippines. At this time, they are not sovereign citizens. They are subjects of, a, of an empire. And so the question then becomes, what is their legal status? Are they US citizens? Well, the answer is no. Are they aliens? Not exactly, um, because they are technically, they were the government of uh, the Philippines was purchased by the United States in 1898 with the Treaty of Paris for $20 million. So what was their legal status? Legally, they were understood as US nationals. And so they, they occupy this kind of legal limbo between alien and citizen. Even though they weren't full citizens, they couldn't vote, they couldn't marry, they couldn't hold office, they couldn't uh, own land, practice law, you know, all the things that you take for granted for being a citizen. At the same time, they were not complete aliens. They could travel to the United States and its territories without a passport. So this, this actually means something quite interesting for, for Filipinos because by 1906, you have that first shipment of Filipinos coming to the territory of Hawaii. It's not a state until 1959, so we have to refer to it as a territory. Um, so up, up until that time, you know, sugar plantation is going full tilt. Uh, Filipinos become the next wave of migrant labor that comes from another place. They start coming to the United States, especially in larger numbers in the 1920s. Around this time, nativist voices in the U.S. were rallying around policies of exclusion. In the late 1800s, this began with the exclusion of Chinese immigrants and quickly expanded to encompass other Asian nationalities in the immigration ban. While Chinese, Japanese, and other Asian immigrants are barred from the U.S., Filipinos can continue to come because of their special legal status, which begins to piss some people off. 
particularly as the Great Depression strikes. There's a lot of anti-Filipino uh, riots that are taking place in Yakima, uh, Washington, or Watsonville, California, getting chased out of neighborhoods really quite violently. Uh, and it's really quite dramatic. And again, it's a combination of this idea that, that uh, Filipinos were sexual predators, they were so-called taking white women, but also taking white men's jobs. You could take your pick in terms of what was the reason, but they were being chased out of these uh, locations uh, really by force. And that was 1930. And the voices of nativism would continue until they finally reached the halls of Congress with the passage of the Tidings McDuffie Act. Dr. Gonzalez says the Tidings McDuffie Act was the solution to all of this. So the idea of making the Philippines an independent nation becomes a really interesting idea. How can we formally exclude the Filipinos, just as we had done Chinese in 1882, Japanese in 1924, 1934, they, they had done so. So it becomes known as the Philippine Independence Bill, but by making the Philippines an independent nation, it really becomes another exclusion bill. So overnight, the thousands of Filipinos that were in the United States at the time, the continental United States at the time, they became aliens. And so the provision of the bill, the Titus McDuffie Act of 1934, was that it would require the Philippines a 10-year tutelage period. After we taught them our great American ways for a decade, and after World War II wrapped up, the U.S. finally granted independence to the Philippines in 1946. But Dr. Gonzalez said the story is not over. Even after independence is declared, he sees the Philippines as intertwined with America. That's a very complicated situation, and I think one, one way to envision this is to, to think about the, um, the actual ceremony that took place in 1946. This is a, a photograph of what this is like and what that would look like in terms of independence in, in 1946 as it's formally declared a, a so-called free and sovereign nation. And this is a photograph that appears on cover of a, of a friend's book uh, by the name of uh, Sharon Del Mendo. She wrote a book called The Star Entangled Banner. Uh, and what you see is the unfurling of these two flags. You know, flags become, again, icon of a nation state, and they, they become a, a source of deep pride for thinking about one's sense of, of sovereignty, of belonging. And as the Philippines would achieve its freedom in 1946, its, its sovereignty in 1946, there's that ceremony that takes place in the Philippines where the United States flag and the Philippine flag are formally unfurled. But during the ceremony, what they find is that they're the wind is catching it and they're entangling the two flags. So you don't see them kind of flying independent of each other. They're still kind of wrapped up in each other. And in many ways, that becomes an interesting metaphor for thinking about the years since and what that would mean for the continued presence of the United States military bases in the Philippines for yet another 50 years. It would take a, um, the explosion of a volcano in, um, in 1991 that would end the formal base presence, uh, U.S. base presence uh, in the Philippines. But we still find that, that the United States and the Philippines has very close and direct ties uh, over that time period. Again, those bases would end up becoming the staging grounds for the United States military to conduct its operations in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War. If the United States did not have the access to those bases, it would, it would not be able to offload uh, all the military personnel and hardware into that region. So it, it was it was critical to kind of think about that linkage. But Professor Claudio respectfully disagrees. This is what I tell my students all the time. It's easy to talk about the Philippines in light of the United States in the United States. We focus on things like the Philippine-American War, 
we talk about things like the American occupation, um, and we talk about things like kind of colonial legacy that creates a Filipino mindset that loves America. And that's true. If you look at the statistics, for example, there was a poll, I think this was five years ago, they looked at countries in terms of their love for the United States, right? Who loves the U.S. more? I think it was a Gallup poll, I'm not sure. Number two in that poll, you can look this up, number two in that poll was the United States. So the people who love the United States the most, the people who win a silver medal for that are Americans. Guess who wins the gold medal? The Philippines. Well, the Philippines loves the U.S. more than the U.S. loves itself. It's crazy. So on the one hand, that's true. There's this like real colonial legacy. But on the other hand, my hope and the reason why I teach Philippine studies in the United States is I want, well, not just Filipino-Americans, but everyone in general to be able to talk about the Philippines in its own terms. And a lot of the problems of the Philippines in this period, a lot of them can be attributable to America, of course, but I think the majority of the problems of the Philippines have to be attributed to the Philippine ruling class, the, the ruling elite, right? And some of them were closer to the U.S. than others, right? Some of them hate the U.S. Rodrigo Duterte, for example, hates the U.S., right? But that failure is a domestic failure, and that's a failure that needs to be discussed in its own terms, right? So that's why, um, yeah, colonial mentality is a problem, but I think the bigger problem for colonial Philippines is really this elite class who have been running the Philippines from post-independence era, era until the present, they really not done enough to create inclusive growth, to respect human rights, to, to make the Philippines more inclusive for women, uh, indigenous people, LGBT, right? These are, these are domestic issues, right? And sometimes mm-hmm. um, those issues have very little to do with the U.S. Professor Claudio thinks it's important to let the Philippines be independent because it is its own country. It would be a powerful thing to let ourselves imagine the Philippines outside the shadow of the United States. Because to ask questions about the Philippines exclusively in light of what's happening in the U.S. is to kind of reproduce a colonial logic, and the colonial logic meaning the Philippines is an appendage of the U.S. Even if our intent is obviously sympathetic and progressive, right, and kind to the country, by framing this question only in light of the U.S., that's a kind of violence to the independent growth of the Philippines as its own community. And that's all for this episode of New Narratives. Join us next time for part two, where we actually get to talking about the plaque and what Minnesota has to do with all of this. Special thanks to those featured in today's story, Professor Lisandro Claudio, Dr. Theodore Gonzalez, and Professor Aguilar San Juan. Music featured in this episode is by Takenobu. This episode was written, edited, produced, and fact-checked by your host, Anya Steinberg, storyteller intern at Asian American Organizing Project. More information about AAOP can be found at our website, aaopmn.org. Thanks for listening.